Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Wired journalist Lauren Good. We're talking about her article, which appears in the May issue. I called off my wedding. The internet will never let me forget. But you will likely remember our recent interview with Dr. Jonathan Javitt, the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma. A twist of fate resurrected a scientific discovery literally shelved for most of two decades. NeuroRx transformed it into a treatment for COVID-19. It's being tested at the time of our interview. Now the results are in. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Every country at war seeks to develop new weapons, ones against which the enemy has no defense. For Japan during World War II, the idea was to build underwater aircraft carriers. In 2013, I spoke with John Gahagan about his book, Operation Storm. It's a fascinating concept. It, it's so counterintuitive. Uh, nobody would really think that you could ever build anything that would carry aircraft underwater like a giant aircraft carrier. But the Japanese really did need some kind of killer app, as you say, and particularly uh, Admiral Yamamoto, who was the uh, thinker or the designer of Pearl Harbor, he needed a follow-up punch to that. And he knew he'd never be able to slip another carrier fleet past the U.S. So he decided in his own, in his own creative way uh, to design a f- squadron of underwater aircraft carriers. Well, these were submarines that acted as aircraft carriers. I mean, 400 feet long, that's longer than a football field. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there was never another submarine that was built that was longer until 1961. So they were really remarkable to think that in 1944, they could build an aircraft carrier or a gigantic submarine that was actually almost 401 feet long. And how wide was it? Uh, I can't remember exactly what the diameter was, but they were like taking two subs and uh, basically soldering them together because they needed a large, stable platform in order to launch planes off the top. So one, the width of one sub wouldn't do that. They really took two subs, like side by side, and then uh, soldered them together. And if you've ever been on a, a normal, if you will, uh, aircraft carrier, there's a catapult at, at, at one end, and, and you hold the plane down, and you rev it really up really, really fast, and then you let go of those wires, and you catapult the plane. You basically throw the plane off the deck, and you hope it comes up and flies. Well, it's the same thing for these submarines. The E-400 class had the longest catapults in the Imperial Japanese Navy. They were 85 feet long, which is a remarkable length to launch anything off a submarine. Uh, And uh, I think the biggest challenge for the designers of the submarine were to come up with a platform that was big enough and stable enough to be able to launch three planes in a row because each one of these subs carried three sizable attack planes. Uh, And to do that uh, in a short enough period of time and not be spotted by the enemy because, of course, uh, the longer a submarine is on the surface, the more danger it is of being spotted by the enemy. So the whole concept behind the E-400 class of submarines was to kind of stealthily creep up to the American coastline, surface, launch three of these planes in a hurry, and then go back, submerge back underneath the water and disappear. 
so that the American people would be stunned to suddenly wake up and find originally the plan was for 44 of these planes to be launched over New York City and Washington, D.C. And Admiral Yamamoto thought, hoped that that would be, um, I guess, a big enough shock to force America to sue for an early peace. They weren't just conceiving of these. They built them. They built them. They, They originally planned to build 18 of them. Uh, but, of course, as the war went on, uh, uh, materials became harder and harder to get to Japan. So they ultimately cut back the number of, of these uh, E-400-class subs to five. But building five of them was still a significant accomplishment. And, of course, the remarkable thing was it took them almost the entire war to complete these submarines. But they were actually on their way to complete their mission when the war ended. So this just wasn't some pipe dream that the Imperial Japanese Navy came up with. They built these things, they launched these things, and they deployed them. And there were three SARIN, that's S-E-I-R-A-N, SARIN aircraft on each of those. And you can actually see a SARIN aircraft. You can visit one. Where is it? Yes, um, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in their Udar Hazy Center, which is near uh, Dallas International Airport in Virginia, has restored the only existing surviving SARIN. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features John Gehagen. His book is Operation Storm, Japan's Top Secret Submarines and its plan to change the course of World War II. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, will your internet surfing follow you for the rest of your life? How about planning a wedding, one you decided to cancel? Tech journalist Lauren Good talks about her Wired magazine article, I Called Off My Wedding, the internet will never let me forget. Then you may well remember one of our recent programs about a scientific discovery which lingered for nearly two decades in some 70 boxes in storage in Essen, Germany, and then was quickly resurrected and being tested as a treatment for COVID-19. The clinical trial has come in, and Dr. Jonathan Javit, CEO of NeuroRx Pharma, returns to tell us the results. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Wired journalist Lauren Good. Lauren, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, years ago, a friend of mine called off her wedding quite close to the actual date, I might say. And she just went upstairs to her bedroom and her mother called the caterers, the florists, the church, several of the guests who could call everybody else. And she even called the unfortunate fiance. Margaret did not come downstairs for two weeks. (laughs) By then, it was all over. Oh, wow. So set the stage for us. Tell us what happened to you and tell us today, if you call off a wedding, just possibly might it never be over. 
Right. Well, maybe some of the heartbreak is similar to what your friend Margaret went through, but I think the aftermath is a little different these days because of technology. So in May of 2019, I ended a very long relationship. We were together for about eight years and in doing the process, canceled our wedding. And the wedding was almost fully planned at that point. When we had gotten engaged in early 2019, we had determined we would get married pretty quickly. So a lot of the plans were already in place. And what I noticed in the months immediately following the wedding cancellation and the end of the relationship was that because of the massive digital footprint that I have as a technology reporter and someone who's been reporting on the technology industry and products and services for the past decade or so, was that it was impossible to escape some of the digital remnants of the relationship. And some of these digital remnants were specific to the wedding planning itself because I had signed up for so many apps and websites and various services, or I had just been using social services like Pinterest, you know, specifically for wedding planning. And some of these remnants were really just about the relationship. And that footprint was just so much larger because it had been, you know, the greater part of a decade at that point that we had been together. And I had so many photos and just so many, you know, little reminders of things that we had done together that, you know, I said, were sort of digitally fossilized in a way. And because of the way that services work these days, you know, with AI and facial recognition, I was just constantly being served these reminders of this person who I was effectively, you know, trying to to move on from. Now, this can happen in a number of ways. Most recently, what I've found is that various apps and even just my phone itself serves up an old photo that I have out there in the cloud. It's like out of nowhere. Right. I mean, this is like, excuse me? Where did this come from? Right. And and one of the things that I wrote about in Wired is this idea that our our memories are being sort of co-opted and in many cases monetized at this point. Because the whole, you know, function of memory rate for many of us is is practical. Like I give the example, you know, that you you try to remember where you parked the car when you go to the store or you went to the airport and drove yourself to the airport. Or maybe sometimes memories sort of come in sideways, like it's this intangible thing that reminds you of something from long ago. It's a person's scent or the smell of a certain food or something like that, right? And that's kind of a haphazard experience because you don't really know when that's going to happen and it may trigger something. But now that our memories are digital and connected to cloud services and, you know, quote unquote smart, and the companies that make them have the goal of keeping you engaged in apps as much as possible. You're just getting served memories all the time, whether it's a photo collage or, hey, you know, you, you express interest in buying this thing. Don't forget to buy it. It's in your shopping cart. Or you did buy this thing. Maybe you'd like more of a thing like that. Um, we're just constantly being flooded with memories. And frankly, they're getting pretty intrusive. Now, we've just talked about, you know, photos that can come back from this relationship. You planned this entire wedding. It has all the elements. What other things, what other elements come back from that entire planning phase? This is a really good question because I think what we sometimes don't realize as users of the internet is just how transactional a lot of our activity on the internet really is. So, you know, what I was trying to, I think, illustrate with this piece is that there are at least two layers here of digital footprints that I was trying to understand. 
And one of those was pretty much like a sort of above board, right? Or on the surface, I kind of understood what was happening to me. And those are the photo memories. That is, I have thousands and thousands of photos in my Google photos, my Apple photos, and maybe some on Facebook and Instagram as well. And when those would sort of pop up, or they pop up on my iPad or my Apple Watch or I'm, you know, on my computer as I'm doing something else, like those are, I sort of understand to an extent what is happening, right? That clear relationship I mentioned where companies are, are basically trying to monetize your engagement in an application or, or just have you in the app as long as possible. But what also happens when you're planning something like a wedding is you're spending a lot of time on the internet just sending these digital signals to marketers that you're planning a life event. So you may just go browsing on the internet and look up you know, a wedding DJ or a venue in some part of the country or something like that. And all of a sudden, all of these marketers, there's kind of this shadow network of marketers that are receiving information signaling that you're interested in that thing. And so then you start to get served you know, so-called relevant information that's related to that. And that's actually, it's hard to control that. It's hard to understand it. And it's hard to fix it once that footprint is out there. Well, certainly a lot of people go to Pinterest because Pinterest is a collection of so many things that people are saying, isn't this, I'm, I'm designing a kitchen. These are 10 great kitchens that I like. And there are all kinds of ideas come from this. Pinterest is the kind of place that one would go to see what kind of dress I might have, what kind of setting I might have, it, and the list goes on. Um, as you wrote, it never rains on Pinterest. Right. Right. It seems like if you're planning a wedding, it's basically impossible to avoid Pinterest. And I had tried. I mean, I had had Pinterest a really long time ago and deleted it because I just, it wasn't serving me in any way. And then during the process of wedding planning, kind of got sucked back into it. And yeah, sometimes you're just, you, you're looking for dress ideas or decoration ideas or whatever it might be. And it all roads lead to Pinterest and you end up in the application, whether you meant to or not. And what happens is, you know, Pinterest basically has a a recommendation engine as well as an ad retargeting platform where they want to show you more content that's related to the content you've already been looking at or pinning as they call it on Pinterest, right? You take an image that you like and you sort of pin it to a board and maybe you've called that board my wedding or my vacation or if you're having a baby, you might call it like the nursery, right? And what I was finding in the months after I had ended the relationship and called off the wedding was that I was still seeing a lot of pins. And I just, it was really incessant. I mean, I'm getting, even until I deleted Pinterest recently, I was still getting near daily collages of ideas for wedding dresses. So I went to Pinterest. This was back in October of 2019 before the pandemic. So I was able to report things in person. And I went to their offices and I sat down with their head of core product and, and said, I'm experiencing this problem. And almost soon as I sat down and cracked open my laptop to show him my Pinterest page, he said, we call this the miscarriage problem. Yeah. <laughs> that was the company's internal name for this problem, which was one of the top five complaints of users. And why do they call it the miscarriage problem? Well, it, you know, it's a pretty jarring term in particular for anyone who has experienced a miscarriage. It's called that because of the way that people might use Pinterest to, say, plan for the arrival of a baby. And then if that ultimately does not happen, that person may still be shown lots and lots of pins that are related to the baby. Could be related to the nursery, could be, you know, if you were decorating the nursery, could be baby clothes, could be anything that, you know, is you preparing for this new phase of life, except that all of a sudden, 
that phase has been, you know, interrupted. And it was a big complaint, and I believe still is, among users of Pinterest. And so Pinterest was aware of the problem, and they were trying to fix it. But what I saw, you know, back in late 2019, when I was first chatting with the company about this, was really just kind of like, you can tune your home feed a little bit, you can unpin certain topics now instead of unpinning things individually. But I mean, for what it's worth, the Pinterest experience for me still felt very cluttered and was filled with reminders of wedding planning. And if you had actually gone forward with the wedding on this time frame you had before, you would still be getting stuff from Pinterest anyway, right? Right. Because what I learned through this experience is that um, in many cases, the internet is interested in showing you relevant information, but doesn't necessarily have a concept of timestamps in your life, which is kind of remarkable, right? When you think about the ways that we're sort of lured into some of these products, particularly social media sites, with the idea that you're using a timeline, right? That things are like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, you know, the way you kind of scroll through things, right? It's supposed to be linear, this kind of experience we have with the user interface, with the UI. But then what happens is when you get on there, these experiences actually become algorithmic instead of linear. And they're just kind of throwing things at you sideways and in different ways that kind of disrupts or warps your sense of time. And so even if you were planning a vacation on Pinterest or decorating the nursery or planning a wedding, you know, at some point there is going to be a natural conclusion to that phase, whether it's a totally disruptive or, or you know, grief-filled one or not, or maybe it's a positive thing and the event was seen through to completion. But even then, the internet's still going to chase you with that content like you you you, people say this a lot too you could have already bought the shoes and you're still seeing the shoes follow you around the internet so why (laughs) is it you know that the internet is supposed to be these services are supposed to be so smart and yet these signals there's such a delay um and, and really like what is that doing to us in our human experience you're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Wired journalist Lauren Good. We're talking about her article, I Called Off My Wedding, The Internet Will Never Let Me Forget. It's in the May issue of Wired magazine and available at wired.com. I think what you last said really has hit me in the sense that we humans, as we move along, we don't forget everything, but we do, as you termed it, we do edit our memories. That's how we get over things, even the things that we, we love. We don't go through every second of, you know, everything that went on. We edit it to tolerate it. This has no respect for that. Right. As I said in this story, um, when I refer to editing our memories, I'm not referring to Photoshop, right? I mean, I'm referring to sort of this natural psychological process uh, where many of us are constantly sort of editing our own memories to either incorporate new information or in some cases to even try to move past trauma. And so I think the big question with the way some of these digital services are working now is what is that ultimately doing to that process when we can't edit our memories or we're losing a little bit of control over how we do edit our memories. And I had the chance to speak with uh, one author, Kate Eichhorn, who wrote a book called The End of Forgetting. And her book really centers on adolescence and what it means for, you know, some people call it the I generation, the digital natives, the kids who are now growing up with digital media and are leaving these really, really large digital footprints. And what is it going to mean for them when someday they, you know, 
even before they become adults, maybe perhaps just graduate to the next phase of adolescence or when they do become adults, what is it going to mean for them to have all these footprints and all these memories, particularly if they've changed a lot, if they've evolved? Um, she writes about how it may pertain to LGBTQ youth in particular who may stand to gain um, from being able to reinvent themselves or explore new identities. And I think that this is something that really should be studied more in particular with younger generations, because it can be incredibly hard to escape memories. And you mentioned positive ones, and there are a lot of positive memories, I think, you know, a lot of us have. But what does it mean to not be able to escape the negative ones? Well, I have to say, now that I knew you were coming on, I looked at uh, the, the photos they've been providing me gratis of my past life. Mm-hmm. And they, they're not just pulling out anything. They're not just pulling out that time you took a picture of a receipt or a fried egg. <laughs> case. They all have faces in them. What's up with that? When you say they all have faces in them, you mean the memories that you're getting through your photo apps actually show faces of your friends? The photos all have fa- my friends, my family, you know, faces of a person, faces of we're all standing there. In one case, it was myself and a guest standing with a big, huge cutout of the entire cast of Downton Abbey, life-size. So it looked like a whole group of people. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like, you're not sending me all the bad ones. You know, you're not sending me the, the I take a picture of a, of a signature I have so I can send it to, you know, right. you're sending me things with people in them. Right. This is no, yeah. So there's more than just, well, we'll just pull out a memory. Right. Even if they're cardboard cutouts of people, they're sending you people. (laughs) Yeah, they're still sending us people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. Well, what's interesting about that is the way in which these photo applications have now been trained to pick up on certain cues within your photos. So many of the popular uh, social media sites and photo sharing applications now use facial recognition technology to identify who some of your quote unquote favorite people are, the people who appear most in your photo album. And they also are trained in some cases to not surface photos that may in some way be considered disturbing. So for example, I spoke to someone at Google Photos who said that um, basically the algorithms have been trained not to resurface photos that may be coming from the scene of an accident or show an ambulance or show a scene in a hospital, which I found particularly interesting in the context of this um, pandemic year that we've all been living through, because I do wonder what it's going to mean a year from now, three years from now, five years from now, if photos start surfacing from this time, which has been incredibly traumatic for so many people. And what will it mean if photos start popping up from times when, you know, some of us had health problems, our loved ones were very sick? Um, What will that look like? Facebook has also pointed out that in its taxonomy of memory services, I think it's called, you know, when they surface the on this day notification in your Facebook feed, they tend to believe that photos of food are actually not that interesting in retrospect. No one really wants to look back on the food photos. But if someone shares a photo and happen to include the phrase like miss your face, then that's something that maybe is a little bit more carries a little more nostalgia with it. So the algorithms have been trained to surface something like that in your memories more. So we're all kind of at the whims of the algorithms here, but the truth is, is that they're still not very nuanced. 
Oh, no, they're not nuanced. Uh, neither Facebook nor LinkedIn can seem to go a minute without suggesting I befriend my ex-husband's wife oh. because we know so many people in common. That's <laughs> that's just great. What a nudge. You know, and I'm sure it happens to her as well. And it's like, really, this is not exactly perfect here, you know, and uh, for some people that could be extremely painful. So the whole idea is you're trying to perfect an algorithm on humans and it has how much of a positive effect, who knows, it's tying you to the site maybe, but the downside is significant and that needs to be examined in a sense, it needs to be at least reflected upon. In many of these cases, what's happening is that the engineers building these products are building it with uh, the bias of the majority in mind, meaning that the majority of users are likely to have a positive experience from these features. At least that's what their data show. But there are still going to be a smaller number of users who are having a negative experience. And the problem is that that negative experience ends up being an outsized negative experience. You know, if you are the person who um, you went through the divorce or the dissolution of a long-term partnership, you had the miscarriage, you lost a parent or a sibling or a spouse, you um, even, I, I even received notes from some readers who said that they, um, they have had drug problems and have gone through rehab and are sober, but they sort of get pummeled with memories from their prior life or pummeled with ads from, you know, direct-to-consumer pharma companies. Um, those are the kinds of users on the internet who are having a very negative experience based on the algorithms that you've built, even if they happen to be in the minority of users. And so I think there needs to be more care and consideration put into how products are built for everyone, not just the majority of users. Now, you built an Excel spreadsheet over time for years, and you recorded every app you downloaded, every service you'd signed up for, and then you went back and started deleting accounts. And while the apps went away, the data didn't. Right. And I should also note that I have since replaced that Excel spreadsheet with a password manager, which I highly recommend. There are a few out there. We've written about them on Wired.com. And it's just a really handy way to keep track of all of the many accounts and different passwords you may have. And of course, you should be using a different password for all your different accounts. You shouldn't have the same one that's repeatable throughout your accounts. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I learned in going through this process. Sometimes you write to a service and you say, I'd like to delete my account. And they reply and say, well, you can deactivate it, but you can't fully delete it, right? Or you delete a social media account, but your photos have already been spread not just through your feed, but through other people's feeds. And so there's no way to really control the way that that has kind of spread, right? So there's this sprawl that happens with your data, um, where even if you happen to sort of clean up your own footprint, or you, you delete, you know, an app container, as we call them, like the actual square of the app from your phone, right, you press it on your phone, and it wobbles, and it disappears off your phone, like your data may still exist somewhere out there. And I think that's a uh, it's an important realization to have when you're just using the internet. <laughs> just using the internet. Now, of course, once you actually they have your data and you might be using the app for three months, six months, a year, uh, the moment they have your data, it's going to leave. It could be sold to anyone. You'll be fished around. It could be hacked. So the moment that you participate, if you will, um, it's the data is is gone. Is there any way you can stop that from happening? I think that that is something that's going to happen at the policy level, frankly, 
because, you know, I think at this point, people may be somewhat aware of the, um, the sort of right to be forgotten, right, which is something that's happened in Europe, but not so much here in the United States. And it's been around for several years at this point. But the whole idea is um, it, it kind of set a, a broader precedent for establishing a legal right. You're listening to tech journalist Lauren Good. We're talking about her Wired magazine article, I Called Off My Wedding, The Internet will never let me forget. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One. Spotify, and Alexa podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, an update from Dr. Jonathan Javitt, the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma. From 70 storage boxes a year ago to clinical trials treating COVID-19, the clinical trial results are in. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Wired journalist Lauren Good about her article, I Called Off My Wedding. The internet will never let me forget. At this point, people may be somewhat aware of the, um, the sort of right to be forgotten, right, which is something that's happened in Europe, but not so much here in the United States. And it's been around for several years at this point. But the whole idea is um, it kind of set a, a broader precedent for establishing a legal right where companies would have to erase links to certain data on the internet. And the idea is that, um, you know, someone could be sort of freed from their prior misdeeds or acts of bad judgment or anything that might come up in a Google search or end up on a search engine forever, um, that people should have some ability to remove negative references to themselves. But the whole idea has really created this tension between the ideas of free expression and, and privacy. And it's something that um, has been established in Europe, but is not um, really taken hold here in the United States in the same way. There's also the California Consumer Privacy Act here in, in California, where we both happen to be, um, that also gives you a little bit more control. You can write to certain companies and ask that they um, 
tell you what kind of data they're sharing. Uh, if they're sharing data with certain third parties, you can ask that it be deleted and that sort of thing. But it's a pretty painstaking process based on my own experience with it. And I just don't think it's something that average consumers are really gonna take the time to go through. So I think, um, some of these changes do have to come at a policy level. I think I don't think all of the onus should continually be put on the consumer to try to stay on top of all of this. Well, this is part of the problem. It's the right to be forgotten from information they've already collected about you. Right. Excuse me. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. How about the how about the 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 right the right to not be recorded? How about right. the, you know? There's a whole whole different thing. Once it's there, you have to request. You have to request that it be deleted. And, and they have to decide if it fits in the framework and the rules. And the, in the time it takes just to request and get a response, who knows where it's been copied to? Right. And, and the other thing to consider, too, is that what we're talking about is the right to be forgotten. And in many cases, I kind of wish I had the right to forget with my experience. I like the idea of editing my own memories. Thank you very much. I have to agree with you there. <laughs> now, people do use uh, sites like, or or processes, we'll call them, or, or approaches like uh, Incognito, DuckDuckGo, Ghostery. What do they do? Why is the, Why are they an advantage? So Ghostery was a company that I included in my story on Wired.com. And what they do is they make a browser extension. That, and there's a free version and a paid version. And I think the paid version is really geared more towards um, more like serious kind of business users who are looking for advanced data and analytics. But what you can do is basically install this this plugin in your in your Chrome browser and then navigate to a website and see from there exactly how many ad trackers are following you as you are on that website and therefore maybe taking your data and sort of following you as you go from site to site after that. And um, I should also note that now, I mean, more browsers are, have this technology built in. Apple also has this feature in its Safari browser now. So you could be browsing the internet and get a sense of exactly um, how many trackers are following you around the web. But this to me very much feels like step one in how you could potentially fix this problem because what we're basically doing is just arming consumers with as much information as possible. But it's a glut of information and it's very hard to make that actionable. It's very hard what to, you know, how to know what to do about that, right? It's kind of like all these pop-ups we see now on the web, you know, including on our own site on wired.com or anywhere else you might go on the web where you say, do you accept these cookies? And if not here, you can go and tweak your settings and et cetera, et cetera. And like, it's really, they become wallpaper really quickly. It's, it's really easy to just ignore them after a while. And so I'm not quite sure of telling people, you know, 17 uh, trackers are tracking you on this website are going to deter you from using the website um, in any real meaningful way. I think there has to be additional action after that that actually stops the tracking from happening. What should be the ethical behavior of all these Internet apps? What should be the rules? We love using them for free, and they're making money with this. I mean, what, sh what is the ethical behavior of of sending people this information, both their own information, their own photos, um, but also uh, things that are relevant to a past life, a past incarnation of themselves. What should be the rules? 
I think this goes back to what we were chatting about earlier when I was describing the problem as being at least two-pronged, right? And I think that if you're going to try to solve the ad tracking problem, that's a much bigger question because you're talking about fundamentally disrupting industries. I mean, in, including journalism, right? I mean, we, we use ads on our sites as well. Um, although, you know, some publications are moving more towards a subscription model and that's kind of how you you know, generate revenue. Um, and so I think that's like a whole other big thorny topic to try to unpack about how you actually build ethical advertising products. And I, and frankly, I'm not sure I have the right answer to that. But I do think that with the very consumer facing applications, the ones that involve photo memories, or showing you recommended content based on content you've already browsed on that site, or something even like Time Hop, which I included in the story on Wired.com. I mean, I think that there should just be much more granular controls. You should be able to opt out of memory functions entirely. Um, you should be able to set parameters around certain memories you want to see or don't want to see. It shouldn't be assumed that you want to see photos again just because you happen to store them in your camera roll. Um, you know, one of the things I think something like Google is trying to do is they're trying to drive you back into the Google Photos app because, you know, something like 90% of your photos, you're not actually revisiting and looking at again. Well, maybe there's a good reason why you're not looking at them. Maybe they just happen to be stored there. You just you just forgot about them. There are a bunch of screenshots or something, you know, or you took a photo of a floor by accident or whatever it might be. You know, there's no reason for us to have to constantly revisit these things. And so I think the assumption in the technology is that we should want to constantly engage with these apps. And I think maybe it's worth looking at the inverse to say, well, maybe the assumption should be that we don't always want to revisit these things. And when we do, we should have a little more control over it. Well, there's always the possibility that the people who thought this was a good idea really have no lives. So they have no idea what bringing all this stuff back means. But that's probably not true. I just made that up. But <laughs> oh, I don't think that's true. I've heard from a, I've heard from a few people who work within the tech companies who have emailed and said, "I'm not sure my employer would be happy that I'm writing you, but I'm very glad you wrote this story." So I do think this is a problem that has touched a nerve with a lot of people. Good, it's a good conversation, that's for sure. Um, okay, so you've picked yourself up, dusted yourself off, learned a thing or two. Um, are you back? dating? Are you back on the dating apps? Oh, we're going there. Um, <laughs> I, she hasn't I, learned her lesson, folks. What can I say? I know. Well, the pandemic has made things kind of interesting because in an ideal world, you know, I would have I would have become single and then had a little had a little downtime and uh, recovered from the eight year relationship. And then I would have just gone back out there into the real world and met people through friends and I don't know, like just out and about. And then, of course, you know, we went to lockdown. So, uh, so I have I have been using some dating apps for sure. And in fact, our May cover story of Wired is a, a cover story of Shar Duby, who runs the uh, Match Group Empire, which owns like pretty much every dating app you can think of. So um, it's kind of interesting because my story is running inside the magazine, but the cover story is about online dating apps. Mm, I see. So you thought you'd dodge the question that I asked you directly. Okay. All right. One journalist to another. I am dating again. I am. And you're on the dating app. I am. You are. I can hear it in your voice. But here's the thing. It's like 
you get to a certain stage in your life, you've been through some ups and downs, you say, okay, I have a much better picture of who I'm looking for, the characteristics of the person that I'm looking for. Those characteristics, which are on the apps, as you put in your profile of things you want and don't want, and which just aren't. Oh, wow. This is okay. I really hope nobody takes my dating advice. Let me just put that out there <laughs> with a disclaimer. Um, but if you so, don't want to marry somebody, don't. <laughs> okay, that much um, Right, right. I can definitely help you cancel a wedding if you ever need to. So I would say um, one of the things that I mention in the story on Wired.com is how I felt that my now ex and I had connected on certain things that seemed important at the time, such as the fact that we were both, you know, into like certain sports and being outdoors. And we um, were both pretty consumed by technology because he worked in technology and I wrote about technology. And those were all things that I think were good to connect on from the beginning. But Um, I think compatibility is different, which is something that I've learned, compatibility and particularly communication styles. And so I think that I would be looking for something that feels just like a little bit more compatible, even if not all all of our interests align, because I think that's part of the fun of getting to know new people is that you can teach each each other new things, right? And and share interests with each other. Um, And I think just kindness is probably kindness and compassion is probably one of the most important things. And of course, right up front, everybody will tell you, I'm very kind and highly compassionate. Of course. So, of course they will. Like, Everyone can write that in the dating profile. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, when you figure it out, Moira, let me know. Oh, I'll, I'll be the first to call <laughs> if I figure it out. So yeah, there are, I think that we're now sort of on round two of what, would be perfect for a dating app to figure out that no one can volunteer about themselves. You can't figure it out, you know, just by checking a box uh, or someone saying, yeah, that I'm that way. I'm that way. And uh, so I guess you're going to have to come back on again, Lauren. I I would love to, I would love to come back and give you an update. Truly. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lauren. You're welcome. Anytime. Please do come back. Thank you for having me. It's, It's been really fun. My guest today is Wired journalist Lauren Good. We're talking about her article, I Called Off My Wedding. The Internet Will Never Let Me Forget. It's available online at Wired.com and in the May issue of Wired magazine, featuring Match.com CEO Shar Duby on its cover. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Recently, we heard from NeuroRx Pharma the firm which recognized the potential of a scientific discovery shelled for two decades. They brought it out of storage and into clinical trials, treating critically ill patients suffering from COVID-19. When I last spoke with Dr. Jonathan Javitt, NeuroRx Pharma's CEO, those clinical trials were still underway. The results are now in. Well, Jonathan, welcome back to the show, and soon, I might add, well, it's it's really exciting to be back with you, Moira. Thank you for catching us when we were sitting in that moment where we were waiting to see what was going to happen. And it's really fun to come back and be with you again. Now, a number of listeners may recall that Jonathan was just on a few weeks back, and we don't usually have people back so soon. Uh, so it's quite unusual, but everything about this story is unusual. Now, remind people the basic story of 
how you got here and what we were talking about just a few weeks ago. Well, we had the chance to talk about how we took a drug that hadn't been used uh, in people for severe respiratory disease in more than 15 years uh, that had never really been uh, formulated as a uh, commercial drug. It had been used in an experiment by Dr. Sami Saeed at Stony Brook University back in 2002, 2003, shown some effect on respiratory failure in people who had bacterial infections and were in the ICU on a ventilator. Uh, and then science moved on and nobody ever followed up on this until COVID came along. And all of a sudden people realized that perhaps this, this old drug, it's actually a natural hormone that everybody makes in their body every day called vasoactive intestinal peptide. Maybe this natural hormone could have a potent effect in helping people with the most severe stages of COVID-19, the people who are in the ICU with respiratory failure. Now, I have to say that most people say, well, what about remdesivir? That's sort of our standard of care. Over 50% of the people with COVID get it. Where would this drug fit in comparison to where remdesivir is used? Well, remdesivir is a very important drug, and it's an antiviral drug. That means it directly attacks the COVID virus or the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But it's mostly shown its benefit when it's used early in the disease, used at a time where the virus is still you know, actively starting to attack the body. And at least if you look in the, the main New England Journal of Medicine paper that everybody refers to on remdesivir, you'll see that it tends not to have a large clinical effect once people are already in the intensive care unit uh, with respiratory failure. Respiratory failure means that the virus has attacked the lung to the point where the lung can no longer transmit oxygen properly to the body. And that's really where we come in. We've done this trial in people who have critical COVID-19. They're in the intensive care unit they're being treated either with high flow oxygen or with a tube in their throat called mechanical ventilation. And there's nothing for these patients right now. There's no approved drug. So when last we left you, you were actually uh, using this in trials on patients in, in several hospitals to see if it would work, correct? Well, we were accumulating the evidence that FDA requires in order to allow a drug to be marketed. So we were conducting what's called a randomized controlled trial where some people get the drug and some people get placebo. Of course, everybody gets the standard of care. So this is in addition to best available care uh, in order to see whether the people who got the drug would be more likely to recover from respiratory failure and more likely to survive than people who got the placebo. And placebo is a fancy word for uh, an infusion of, of salt water, of saline, uh, instead of an infusion of drug. So the people in the study all got the best care possible anyway, and some, in addition, got this drug. Well, that was certainly our intention. Uh, and as you look at the results we've uh, released and you follow our journey, uh, you'll see that, in fact, at, at some of the regional hospitals where we did the trial, the pandemic was so severe uh, that it was difficult to give the very highest standard of care 
196 people were treated altogether. About two-thirds of them were treated at uh, top university medical centers, academic medical centers. A third were treated at, at community hospitals. And what happened? Well, what we saw across, you know, sort of all the patients, all the sites, lumping together, you know, everybody, we saw a, a real difference emerge, not only in the, uh, the treatment effect, that is the likelihood that you would recover given that you got the drug instead of placebo, but also in the likelihood that you would survive given that you got the drug instead of placebo. Now that treatment effect was mostly driven by the people who were being treated in the tertiary care medical centers. Well, tertiary is a big word. What, what do you mean by that? Well, there, there's a tier of hospitals across the country. Often they're university hospitals, but not always, where you have round-the-clock critical care specialists in the intensive care unit. You have round-the-clock critical care fellows, that is, critical care doctors in training in the intensive care unit. You have round-the-clock respiratory therapists in the intensive care unit. And that makes the difference between being able to, for instance, turn the patient over and, and let the lungs aerate a little better uh, because that's a, a job that takes several people. And that sort of thing doesn't tend to happen in the middle of the night. Uh, in a community hospital, you just don't have the staff. Now compound that and talk about a community hospital where the ICU is at 200% over capacity and you've got beds set up in the parking lot under a tent to deal with this horrible public health catastrophe that, that we're all living through. And you're just not able to deliver the, the very best care you would want to deliver under really battlefield circumstances. So you found different results in the tertiary high care hospitals than you did in the community hospitals. Tell us what results you found in each. How did they compare? Uh, we've not found a large difference with our drug in the community hospitals, especially the ones where sort of 80% of the patients didn't survive, whether they got our drug or placebo. Uh, but we found a very substantial difference in recovery from respiratory failure and patients surviving to 60 days uh, among those who were treated in academic medical centers uh, with our drug versus placebo. So the difference was found really in the high care tertiary hospitals. What did you find? Well, as we told the, the public last week, uh, in that group of patients, those who were treated with Zysami had about a three-quarter chance of recovering and getting home to their families compared to about half of those treated with placebo. So it's a substantial difference and a statistically significant one. So what do you do next? How do you get it so people can finally get this drug in this situation? Well, our top priority is to get the FDA to give us what's called emergency use authorization. And that's a special law that Congress passed, particularly for times of public health crisis where medications may not exist that are needed. Uh, and it's a mechanism by which the FDA can give you very quick approval to start using the drug in the community while you go through the painstaking steps that are required for a formal permanent drug approval. How was this drug given to patients? So in this study, 
And in patients who were in the ICU like this, we gave the drug as an intravenous infusion, which was also done in remdesivir. That means you put it in the intravenous bag and it drips into your arm. Now we're starting studies with the drug in inhaled form, which will be much easier for patients to use and maybe even use at home one day. If we go back to what we talked about a month ago, it's just that this drug was sitting in a warehouse in 70 containers for years in Germany, and nobody was looking at it. What's the timeline from the time you picked it up in the warehouse and took a look at it, and today? How long has that taken? It's nearly 13 months to the day. We started this project March 4th of last year. And as you pointed out, uh, the drug really was in 70 file boxes uh, in a warehouse in Essen, Germany. It's probably the first time a drug has gotten from concept to clinic, really from the first thought about using the drug until uh, we're at a point where we're actually asking FDA for permission to treat a broad population in this kind of timeline. Another problem is the fact that you're not a huge pharmaceutical company with all kinds of manufacturing plants. If you get this emergency use approval, how are you going to produce it, especially with the huge demand we have today? Well, we're, we're fortunate to have teamed up with a manufacturer called Nephron Pharmaceuticals in West Columbia, South Carolina, and they may be the nation's largest supplier of inhaled use sterile drugs. Clearly, uh, we're a very small group of people. When we started this project, there were fewer than 10 of us. Now we're still fewer than 25. But if, if you partner with the right people, you can accomplish all sorts of things as a biotech company. Now this still leaves us with the worry what about the community hospital setting? What about those people? Is there something we can do to make that better? It's important that we keep our message straight about what happened in the community hospitals. These were not your average community hospital. In fact, the hospitals that wound up in our study had done quite well using the drug in uh, an open-label setting where you're not in a placebo-controlled trial, you're just giving the drug to a patient on an emergency basis. So every hospital that got into the study had demonstrated an ability to succeed with the drug. And then they got hit by the horrible surge that we had in December and January, where suddenly the ICU was at 200% over capacity. You had patients in beds in the parking lot you had hospital staff who were out with COVID-19 themselves. The staff was stretched really to the breaking point. Uh, and that's the setting in which the drug alone was just not sufficient to make a difference. So given that, which is a, a challenge one never foresees in a clinical trial, given that when it's a more normal circumstance, when it's not pushed to high capacity, double the capacity, and it's been demonstrated to work in those settings, that we don't have to have a different kind of protocol or methodology for community hospitals. That's certainly our hope, because we've seen these same hospitals be quite successful uh, in using the drug under much more normal circumstances. And the same effect we observed, where uh, ICU overcapacity has a very damaging effect on patient survival, 
was seen in an 8,000 person study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, where they showed that ICU overcapacity cuts survival in the ICU uh, in half in the setting of COVID-19, because there's just such intensive care that's needed to keep these patients alive. When you started this, you were under 10 people. Now you're under 25 people. How do you address all the massive paperwork that's needed, even for emergency use authorizations? It's back to what I was saying about having great partners. Uh, We've got a regulatory group that's at the top of their game. We have a regulatory law firm that we think is, is the best regulatory law firm in the country. There's a lot of work, but we know how to get it done. So if you separate out all the regulatory, if you separate out all the manufacturing, you're really focusing, your team is focusing on development and making sure, the research and development that makes sure that this works. And does that mean your core team has to grow or can you do it with these, this number of people? Well, our core team certainly is growing uh, and growing rapidly, but it, it really starts with the leadership. You know, my right-hand person through, throughout all of this, Robert Besthoff, led the entire you know, neuroscience and pain division as their commercial lead at, at Pfizer for many years. Uh, Rick Panacucci, who's leading our manufacturing operation, had years, decades at Novartis before going to Wuxi Aptech and helping to build their manufacturing operation. And we're bringing on pharmaceutical veterans, people who have done exactly what we need to do, but done it in some of the nation's largest pharmaceutical companies. So even though we're a small team, uh, we're a team of people who've done this before. Big Pharma begets Small Pharma. Not only does Big Pharma beget Small Pharma, but it begets Smart Pharma. Ooh, I like that. You're agile. They're not. (laughs) That could be your motto. I'll let you have it. No, our motto more is is bringing hope to life. There you go. There you go. Jonathan, thank you so much. Uh, We'll be watching. Congratulations on the success of the trials. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll see that emergency use approval make a lot of difference to a lot of people. Thank you. Dr. Jonathan Javitt is the CEO of NeuroRx Pharma. For updates on their work in the treatment of COVID-19 respiratory failure, as well as their efforts to treat suicidal depression, more information is available on the web at neurorxpharma.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.